morning. <clears throat> so we're obviously still remaining in the Sermon on the Mount. We're looking at the uh, chapter 6, verses uh, 5 and following. We'll actually only look at 5 through 8 this morning, examining 5 through 8. Uh, we're breaking down the section on the Lord, what is called the Lord's Prayer, uh, at least over the next three or four weeks, probably. Uh, because today we're looking at the, the introduction to this section, verses 5 through 8 again. And then next week we're going to start into the Lord's Prayer. We may, I'm, I'm still not sure exactly how I'm going to approach it. We may do a survey of the entirety of the Lord's Prayer. And the week after that, look at a couple specific pieces of that. And then we're going to save 14 and 15 till the week after that. So we may go three or four weeks on this section. It's a very important section, so we want to make sure and give it its, its due. I know we've spoken on the Lord's Prayer before, but I want to put it in its complete package and in its contextual package as well. Before we start this morning, though, let's have a word of prayer and then we can open up the text. Lord, help us as we come to your text this morning. I pray that you will be merciful to us and open our eyes so that we can see, open our hearts so that we can receive your truth. Open our hearts not just to see what your Scripture says, but to see ourselves as well. And I pray in the time of our study that you will glorify yourself, draw us close to you, uh, bring us to repentance, to the realization of our sin and our need for a Redeemer. And so we ask you that you bring glory to yourself, not to us, and um, not allow us to even bring glory to ourselves. And Lord, I pray that you will be honored in our time. In your name I pray. Amen. So again, we're going to be looking at verses 5 through 8 this morning, but in order to understand verses 5 through 8, there's several things we need to be reminded of. The one is obvious because we say it every week. The first one is, as you remember, we are in the, what is called the Sermon on the Mount, uh, verses, or chapters 5 through, eight, uh, through 7. But in order to adequately and correctly understand chapters 5 through 7, we must remember that the key to interpreting the text in its entirety is found in chapter 4, the previous chapter, chapter 4, verse 17. And so I would be remiss in my ministry if I didn't remind you of that. Verse 17 of chapter 4. From that time Jesus began to preach saying, Repent! For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And as we've said every week, I want to remind you, the call of Jesus in the, in the subsequent messages He preaches is a call to repentance. That's what He says. He's preaching, saying repent, and the reason why the repentance is necessary is because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And of course, Jesus being the King of the King of heaven is... The representative of this kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, and it's at hand because Christ is come. The fullness of time, as the scriptures describe it, it has arrived. It is the time of the kingdom, and and that's the point of the messages. Therefore, you need to repent. Now, as we've said every week, the idea is that if the call is to repent, there must be a reason to repent or a thing I need to repent from, or in reality, multiples or even multitude of things that need to be repented from. And so what Jesus is doing is He's answering the obvious question in the Sermon on the Mount. What is there that needs to be repented from? And to, of course. And so we've seen it. We're not going to go over chapter 5 again, but what Jesus is calling them to is the evidence. He's presenting to them the evidence 
that they have not measured up to the Old Testament law. That's going to continue. They have not measured up, and since they have not measured up, then repentance is their only option. Because without repentance, the alternative is the sure curse that is presented into the law because blessing is not available. That brings us to chapter 6 where we said last week as we looked, actually two weeks ago, as we looked at chapter 6 verses 1 through 4, we looked at verse 1 first and then 2 through 4 in light of verse 1 of chapter 6, that there is a dramatic shift that takes place from chapter 5 to chapter 6. I'm not going to go over that again today except to just tell you if you didn't pick up on that we really laid that out last week pretty clearly that there is a dramatic shift it's not a complete shift but is a dramatic shift in how Jesus is communicating here it's almost as if you get the sense that Jesus at the same time that he's still pointing out the need for repentance at the same time he is opening the door to the idea that maybe some are already repenting and so there is both that You need to repent because you have failed as well as more clear instruction going on. So we're at chapter uh, 6, verses 5 through 8 this morning. It's the intro, if I may put it this way, to the Lord's Prayer. But before we get into the discussion of this section, we need to recognize that once again, God has given us, Jesus has given us a key. It's a a second key or a, 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 a subsequent key that doesn't, reject the first key of 4.17, but it builds upon it, and that's verse 1 of chapter 6. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. The, the point Jesus is making in general in 6.1 is the idea of beware that you don't practice your righteousness before other people. That is going to show up, what well, already has shown up in 2 through 4. He gave one specific example of that in 2 through 4. That's what we saw last week. That is the giving to those who are needy, or giving of alms, as the King James says. In 5 through 15, he's going to talk about this righteousness before other people in the issue of prayer. And then in 16 through 18, he's going to talk about uh, fasting for the purpose, or doing it in front of other people for the purpose of receiving praise from other people. So we get three illustrations of verse 1 being given uh, throughout the rest of this section. Please understand, however, when we look today at 5 through 8 and then the next couple weeks in the rest of this section, all the way through verse 15. He is not at all saying, Jesus is not at all saying, here are the only three ways in which you can practice your righteousness before others. These are illustrations. Examples. It is up to the reader, or in Jesus' case while He was speaking, the hearer to put their own personal skin on it. You may or may not find all three of these to be you. For example, if you've never fasted in your life, you would not ever find yourself fasting before other people for self-righteousness sake, would you? Does that make sense? You have another issue, maybe. Or if you've never given to the needy in your entire life, 
Your issue is not verses 2-4, through four, is it? Because you never give it to the needy anyway. Your issue is something else. It's just an example. All three of these are examples, or to put it a different way, they're kind of like priming the pump, as it were. Once the pump is primed, there's all sorts of water that's going to come out. But we've got to prime the pump first. And what he does is he hits for the Jewish people three typical examples. Three typical things that are in their life that are examples for them that Jesus gives that are examples for the typical Jew in Jesus' day that they're failing in. That they're, they are self-righteous in these areas. The issue is not, are you self-righteous in this area? No? Oh, good check. Self-righteous in area two? No? Ah, oh, good check. Self-righteous number three in the third area. That's not you either? Good check. You're doing great. That's not the point. The point is that these are classic areas whereby people fail and they give way to self-righteousness. There's a myriad of other ways. So please don't ever read this text. And it both uh, 2 through 4, 5 through 15, or 16 through 18, and say, Well, I'm doing all right. Because if you do so, you've missed the whole point. The issue is not about giving of, of, of money or things to poor people, praying the right way, and fasting the right way. Those are just examples. Does that make sense? Very important we get that. Now, that being said, again, in Jesus' day, giving of money or, or giving of things to people in need was a very, very common thing, two through four. And certainly the law talked very strongly about that. So you'd be clearly in violation of the law if you didn't do that. Praying, Old Testament and New Testament, really a big thing, isn't it? It's everywhere throughout the Old Testament. It's talked about all the time in the New Testament as well. Big thing. Fasting. Really talked about heavily in the Old Testament. Talked about somewhat in the New Testament as well. Interestingly enough, the last one he chooses that we're not looking at today, fasting is something that's never commanded in the Scriptures. We are commanded to pray, and we are commanded to give to those and care for those who are in need. But we're never actually commanded to fast. It's interesting that he concludes on one that's not commanded which should really cause our mind to start thinking. So we're looking today at praying. And we'll be looking at it for the next few weeks. Notice 5-8 through eight again. When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. And that word hypocrite shows up in all three categories. Giving, praying, and fasting. You must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will, will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Now, again, just a reminder, this is a second example. He's going into the second example of verse 1 of chapter 6. Before we get into the text itself, I want just to say that there are a lot of Christians who have looked at 5-8 through eight 
and have come up with all sorts of perspectives that I think are not the point of what Jesus is trying to get across. What I mean by that is they've looked at 5-8 through eight and they've tried to come up with techniques that you ought to do in your praying. And I don't think that's the point of the text. We're going to address those things, but the point of the text is not that. In fact, I would argue it's not even that for the actual section of the Lord's Prayer 9-13 through 13 either. But we'll get there when we get there. A couple things I want to notice. We're going to wander through the text, and as we go through, I'm just going to stop on things and point them out to you. Right off the bat, notice what he says in verse 5. And when you pray, I want you to notice he didn't say, and if you pray. That's an important statement. Jesus is presuming to the, with regard to the people he's speaking to that they what? That they pray. And in Jewish custom, they prayed. Throughout their day, they prayed. A minimum of five times a day, they would pray. Many of them prayed far beyond five times a day. And we're not talking when we say this, like, well, we got three times down pat, right? In America, we got, you know, good Christian, we pray three times a day, right? And what are those three times a day? Over our food, right? And we have some sort of perfunctory prayer over our food. And if we're really spiritual, we'll throw a fourth one in, which is when? What's that? When we go to bed, right? And we may even have a cutesy little poem, we say, or whatever the case may be. Now, these prayers that the Jews would pray were not really perfunctory prayers like that, or presumptive prayers, or kind of flippant prayers. They were pretty serious things. And we're going to discover Jesus' perspective when we get to uh, 9 through 13 a little bit more. But I want you to notice right off the bat that Jesus says, and when you pray, the assumption is that we do pray. Now, I want, again, I want to pause before I get off because one of the things I, I have learned over the years has been studied again and again and again. That the vast majority of Christians, and when I say Christians, I use the term very, very loosely. Very loosely. And the studies have not just been anybody who says they're a Christian. The studies have also included just what you'd classically call conservative Christians or fundamental Christians or evangelical Christians, even though those words have almost lost their meaning as well. And the vast majority, every single survey says the same thing. The vast majority. Do you think they pray a lot or do you think they don't? The vast majority of even conservative Christians don't pray. And I'm not talking about they just don't pray except for occasionally. The vast majority don't pray. They're not praying people. Now you could throw a, a, a separate part out there and say that, that the surveys also show the vast, vast majority of conservative Christians also don't read the Bible. And it does set the mind to wonder, if I may just pause on this, as somewhat of an aside, but it is interesting how Jesus chose the words. He didn't say if, he said when. And words do mean something. It does set the mind to wonder, is it possible somebody could be a true believer and not be a prayer. It's an interesting thought. 
I'm not going to spend too much time on this, but I know that um, I'm, wow, the, the name just blanked out completely on me. Um, a long time ago, it's like 1700s or whatever, uh, he wrote a commentary series, real popular even today. Matthew Henry, thank you very much. I knew you'd remember. Matthew Henry. Matthew Henry straight out used to say, and he'd say it over and over and over again, if you're prayerless, you're graceless. That's the way he'd put it. As simply said as possible, if you're prayerless, you are graceless. And what he meant by that, if you are prayerless, you are not a recipient of grace. And he was unabashed about that. He would declare it again and again. What he meant is, if you don't pray, you have not received grace. What he's meaning is you're not saved. And the reason why he said that is if we are a recipient of grace, if grace is anything, if grace is any, anything at all to a human being that is God's grace, if God's grace poured out on anyone means anything, it would cause that recipient of God's grace to love the One who has poured it. That's what it means. And if the One who has received God's grace as a result of receiving it loves the One who poured it out, God Himself, and He will, (laughs) because that's pure and simple mercy that He pours out His grace, is it not? And in pouring out His grace on one, the Scriptures tell us in Ephesians chapter 2 what happens to that person. They're made alive. And they're given the faith to believe by His grace, right? And as a result of that, they are transformed and transforming. And since they're transformed and transforming by the Spirit who they've been given, they will, as a result because they have a new nature, do what? They will love the One who what? First loved them. And if they love the One who first loved them, they are going to what? Want to talk to the One who has loved them at that level. Does that make sense? And that applies to the reading of the Scriptures as well, doesn't it? They're going to want to hear from the one who has loved them that greatly. So that's why, why Matthew Henry always said, if you aren't a prayer, if you don't pray, if you're prayerless, you're graceless. And it should cause the one who claims to be a believer to question. As I was driving here this morning, I was listening to R.C. Sproul. He was preaching on something totally different than this. But, wow, just like that, my mind went boom. It's got twice now this morning. It's scary, isn't it? I am getting old. We're going to lay the RC Sproul thing. It'll pop in later on. Maybe I'll pull it out. It was really good what he had to say. But that's okay. All that to be said, the point that Jesus starts off with in this second illustration is when you pray. So, 
If you're not a prayer, if you're not someone who prays regularly, this is a classic example. If you're not someone who prays regularly, your issue is not what this text says. Is it? This is not your issue. Your issue is much more basic than this. And so that's why I paused on this to say if you aren't someone who prays, the issue isn't the, boy, I better start praying. No, that's all law, isn't it? The issue is why am I not praying? What don't I believe? I just remember what he said. What R.C. Sproul said was, it's not enough to believe in God. I was like, what? It's not enough to believe in God. He said, you also need to believe God. What a great yet subtle point. I can say I believe in God and not pray. I can't very well say I believe God and not pray. Because I believe what God says about Himself, and if I believe what God says about prayer, if I believe what God says about Him being a sovereign and ordaining God, if I believe what He says about my sin, if I believe about what He says about whatever He says, you know what I'm going to be? I am going to be a prayer. It's not enough to believe, just believe in God. I must also believe God. But it's an interesting statement. When you pray, he goes on and says, you must not be like the hypocrites. We've seen this before, haven't we? Verse 1. There's the key right there in verse 1. He says it again in, he doesn't use the word uh, uh, hypocrite there, but he uses it later. Uh, in verse uh, 2. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites. In verse 5 again, when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. Now why is Jesus, and He'll do it again in fasting, He'll bring up the hypocrites again. Why does He keep doing this? Why do you think three times with three illustrations, He warns them not to be like the hypocrites? Why do you think? Okay, more basic than that. Why is he warned them to not be like the hypocrites? Because we are. <laughs> exactly. Beware not to be like the hypocrites. And he says that three times in three illustrations because the simple matter of fact is everybody is. Remember, the call 417 is the preaching he's going to do is the preaching repent because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. When he says, beware that you're not like the hypocrites, he's saying it really, I would argue, sarcastically or tongue-in-cheek because they are. If you remember in chapter 5, he says to them, unless your righteousness is as what? Exceeds that of the scripture. The, the Pharisees, you will not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Why does he say that in 520? Because that's what they're looking to. That's who they're looking to. That's who they're striving to be like. Hoping without hope that they could actually accomplish what the Pharisees are like. 
But Jesus is saying, what about those Pharisees? They're hypocrites, and it makes it really clear in chapter 24, doesn't it? I believe it's chapter 24 over and over and over again. Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. Chapter 5, unless your righteousness exceeds theirs, you won't enter the kingdom of heaven. They don't have a hope of exceeding theirs. They're striving to be like them. So he says, don't be like them. Well, that's what their whole life has been. Trying to meet up to the standards of the scribes and Pharisees. So when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. Instant condemnation. Instant call to the need of repentance. Instant hopelessness of their own righteousness. Because they can't exceed the scribes and Pharisees. You must not be like the hypocrites. And he goes on in verse 5 and says, For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they might be seen by others. Now, here comes our first statement that I've heard many people say. They try to make some sort of formula or, or prescription for how we ought to pray And it says here, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues. And I've read and seen many people say, well, you know, the better way to pray is not standing, it is kneeling. If you're going to be humble, you need to humble yourself by kneeling. That's not the point. The Scriptures record Jesus praying standing, record Old Testament prophets standing and praying, record Uh, uh, the apostles at various times standing and praying. Even the guy who beat his chest was standing and praying. That's not the point. There's something much greater going on here than it's somehow better to kneel than to stand. Yes? Or kneeling or laying or doing something. Exactly. 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 Absolutely. Good. So it says the the point of the text is not position. The point of the text is the word before it. Or two two words before it. For they love. You could drop the word stand out of there for a second and just recognize for they love to pray to be seen by others. That's the point of the text. Yes, they are standing in the synagogue. And yes, they are standing in Jesus' illustration. They are standing on the street corners. Does that mean you shouldn't stand and pray in the synagogue or in church? Or that you shouldn't pray at the street corner? No, it doesn't mean that at all. The point of the text is they love to pray to be seen by others. In other words, they want in their praying to be seen as 
holy or righteous. They want to be seen as a lover of God. They want to be seen for how much they love God. They want people to say, wow. Yeah, great way to put it, Charles. Their reputation is more important to them than their relationship with God. And that's the point of the end of verse 5. Not the end, but the middle of verse 5. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Now, let me just stop and move off of prayer for just a second. Again, because I, I, as I said, it's just an illustration. His, his point about prayer here is an illustration of self-righteousness. So, let's just stop for a second. Step off of prayer for a second and just put something else in there. Anything you want. Anything you want. They love to blank that they may be seen by others. They love to share their knowledge to be seen by others. They love to blank, whatever it may be, to be seen by others. It could be anything. Now, in Jesus' illustration, it's prayer. And it's an important illustration because it's common. The issue for these people, these hypocrites, and of course later on he's zeroing in on the scribes and Pharisees, but here he's including all of them. When you pray, you must not be. And under his breath you can hear him say, and you are. You must not be like, although you are, You must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and in the street corners that may be seen by others. The issue for the text is this. If I may bring it in now, you're going to hear for the next couple weeks. When it says they're doing this praying to be seen by others, I'm going to make it as generic as possible and yet tie it into the text as tight as possible. The issue that Jesus is addressing whether you're looking at 2 through 4, 5 through 15 or 16 through 18 is the same. The issue can be summed up in this. Whose kingdom are you after? That's the point of the text. Whose kingdom are you after? Whose kingdom are you trying to extol? Whose kingdom are you trying to magnify? Whose kingdom are you trying to get people to see and recognize? In this case, he's talking about prayer. You see, the people who are being hypocritical and praying to be seen by men are wanting people to recognize their kingdom. And when people recognize their kingdom in a favorable way, they're going to, by default, when they recognize it as favorable, say they want to be part of that kingdom. Do you realize that? I want also to be recognized as part of that kingdom. 
really important that we get this. Because we can't get captivated by it all the time. Let me use an illustration. It's personal to me. I used to love it. I'll be honest with you. Back when I was at, at Word of Life, I used to love it when I used to hear students say, well, you know what Steve said? Or as Steve said it, Or, you know, Steve explained it this way. I used to love that until I realized, you know what? What's that about? It's about Steve. And now when I hear it, I'm like, no, Steve, don't allow that. No, stop. Because I feel it. I feel it coming on. But it's not about me. It just isn't. But I just feel it just naturally start to well up in me. You know Why? You know, I start to feel that well up on me, in me, when I hear someone say, well, Steve said. Do you know why? Because what? Let me get more tight to the Scriptures in this text because I'm a hypocrite. You're right though, Tom, because I'm prideful. But because I'm a hypocrite. Because you know, when I start finding myself pridefully, you know, being pleased that people are saying, well, when Steve said, as Steve said, like Steve said, well, you know, Steve, 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 you know what, you know what starts to happen? It's inevitable I start preaching and teaching into that. It's carnal. And you know what I'm starting to do? I'm starting to build my kingdom. And what I want people to say is what? Well, Steve said, It's easy to do. And before you know it, i got my own little disciples, right? They just follow me everywhere. Listen to what Steve said. Talk about what Steve said. And after a while, Steve starts thinking, I'm kind of inspired. And it's the kingdom of Steve. It happens really easy, doesn't it? Happens real fast, doesn't it? And it feels really right, doesn't it? And it feels really natural, doesn't it? And it feels really good, doesn't it? Beware. Happens in a second. Beware. Getting back to the text itself, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and in the street corners that they might be seen by others. Well, pray you'd expect to happen in the synagogue, right? Right? Of course you would. If you're in a religious culture, you kind of expect that prayers would take place on the street corners, wouldn't you? Today we could probably change it to beware. They love, beware of being like the hypocrites for they love to stand and pray in church and at the coffee shops. They may be seen by others. Does that sound a little more familiar to us today? If you like coffee, you like to go to coffee shops. Sounds a little more normal, doesn't it? But they're being hypocrites. 
He goes on in verse six, verse five, and says, "Truly I say to you, and you should remember this from last uh, section. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward." What's he saying? People like this, and Jesus is saying it's all of us. It's everyone, whether it's this illustration specific or others, because again, it should be priming the pump. We are hypocrites. And Jesus says, as a hypocrite, what has happened? End of verse 5. They have what? They've already received their reward. Which means what? We talked about it last week. What does that mean? If they've received their reward already, what does that mean? They're not going to get it in the future. And the reward that they received didn't come down from the Father of lights, to quote James. Did it? It came from people and ultimately it's coming from the father of darkness. And the point is, if you don't get the the reward in the future, you're going to get the curse instead. And that's the warning that Jesus is giving to the hearer. They've already received. They have received their reward. What is the reward in this text? The reward is the honor that they get from people who are also hypocrites. The honor and the praise from the other hypocrites. If I may stay on on, on the subject matter about the praise and the reward, step outside of prayer for a second. I'm 62 years old. I've been a pastor now for I think 19 years. Before that, I was a teacher and dean of men at a Bible college for 12 and a half years. Before that, I was I was uh, wilderness camp director at a camp. I regularly, when I talk to pastors, have pastors ask me a question. After they ask me the question, how big is your church, which is always the first question, which I always find intriguing. But usually the second question is, especially since I'm a little older, Usually somewhere along the line, the next question or a very quick question after that is the question, so what do you think your legacy is going to be? I find that question really intriguing. I probably mentioned this before, but I find the question really intriguing at all sorts of levels. At its most basic level, what is the pastor that's asking me that question talking about? He's saying, what... Go ahead, Tom. Yes. Yes. How will people think of you? How will people remember you? How will people remember your ministry? How will people remember all of your preaching and your teaching and and your shepherding or whatever terms you want to use as they think back on you? And you know I tell people regularly, pastors, they're not going to remember me. I love. I don't remember who the person was, but I love the way the person described it. They said, "When I di- when the person was saying, when I die, here's what's going to happen. They're going to all get together. All my friends and relatives are going to get together, and they're going to cry for a little bit, and they're going to say some things about me. And then they're going to go over. To, then they're going to put me in the ground. They're going to throw dirt on me. They're going to go over to my house. And they're going to have a party, 
and eat all my food and drink everything I have. Then they're going to leave and they're going to go back to their life and they're going to get busy with their life and they're going to forget all about me. And in the process, I'm just going to rot in the ground and I will be forgotten. And except for a few exceptions, that is the case, isn't it? Isn't it? I mean, I love my brother. I seldom think of him anymore. Hope you're not offended by me saying that. I don't think about him that much anymore. Occasionally, I'll be doing something and my brother comes to mind and I remember him. But it doesn't happen like it used to. He's been gone now for, what, nine, ten years? I just don't think about him much. Don't think about my father very much anymore. He's been gone for what, 12, 13 years? He doesn't cross my mind much anymore. Most people, after they die, that's what happens. We move on, they don't on this earth. Our life gets filled up with all sorts of things that are other than that person. And then I'm reminded, this life will soon be past what? Only what's done for Christ will last? And that's not about me, is it? Is it? It isn't. It's certainly foolish to pursue a reward that will amount to nothing and account for nothing in the judgment day, except for judgment. Truly, I say to you, they've received their reward. What kind of reward is that? What kind of legacy will I have? I hope what I leave behind is that some people love Jesus. That didn't before. I hope that there'll be some people who will love Jesus more than they loved, loved Him before. But you know what? I hope beyond anything else that they don't say, wow, it was Steve. When my car's fixed, I don't, I don't sit there and say, wow, what a great wrench after the mechanic fixes my car. I don't say, what an amazing wrench that is. Wasn't that the most amazing wrench? All praise, all glory to the wrench! That's kind of bizarre, isn't it? I'm grateful to the mechanic, aren't I? Aren't I? When it comes to this life that is me and this life that is you, the only real mechanic is Jesus. He puts it together. At best, I'm a wrench, and I'm a pretty rusty one. Anything that is accomplished by me is accomplished in spite of me. I'm just a grimy, squeaky, rusty, unwieldy wrench that because he has all power, he can do something with. <laughs> That's why John said, I must decrease and he must 
increase. We're caught up in all the wrong things. And it's nothing but self-righteousness. It always bothers me when I hear pastors ask, what do you think your legacy is going to be? What are you talking about? A glory to Jesus. All things are what? From Him, through Him, to Him, to Him and me be glory forever and ever. Amen. How about to Him primarily, to me secondary, be glory forever and ever. Amen. No? How about to God the Holy, God the Father, God the Holy, Son, God the Holy Spirit primarily, the Scripture secondary, and to me tertiarily be glory forever and ever. Amen. No? <laughs> tertiarily? <laughs> I tried. I tried, Tom. I tried. It'll be in the, word. It'll be in the dictionary eventually. Trust me. <laughs> What's that? Yeah, that'll be my legacy. <laughs> Somebody call Oxford. It'll get in. But you get the point. It's all glory to Him. Not shared. Any glory I receive from man is my reward today. And it ought to be abhorrent. The point of the text in verse 5 is when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites even though we are and therefore we need to repent for they love to be seen by others in this case with prayer. Instead, he says in verse 5, what we shouldn't be, which is what we are. Verse 6, he says, but what we should be, but when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Now again, what people have done they get here and they say, so this is what we need to do. And they look at the mechanics of it and miss the whole point once again. Just like we saw in verse 5, we should kneel instead of pray because that keeps us humble is the typical way it's described. Verse 6, what we should do is go into our room and shut the door. Which, by the way, for the poorest of people in Jesus' day was a real problem because the people didn't have doors. So if we're really going to be specific, we should have, we, we, they need to go out and build doors on their, on their poverty-stricken homes. It was only if you were relatively well-to-do that you had doors. Which is interesting. The point of the text is not make sure you have a prayer room, which is another thing that people talk about a lot, or a prayer closet, and you need to close the door as if somehow having this specific dedicated room or closet and closing the door suddenly changes your heart. If I do this activity, then my heart somehow changed. That's not the point. The point in verse 6, but when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father. What is he talking about? He's saying, when you pray, in verse 5 kind of way, you're really praying to who? The people around you. Because it certainly isn't getting to God. Right? And you're praying with regard to whose kingdom? Your kingdom. 
the point of verse 6 is put yourself in a position where you are going to war. And I'm not talking about physically a position. But put yourself in your heart into a position where you are doing what? That in your praying, you're actually going to war against your own kingdom. Your own rulership. Your own pride. Your own hypocrisy. The point is, what kingdom are you focused on? The call of Jesus in this repentance, don't be focused over here, which is where you have been. Repent of that and focus on Focus on God, verse 6, and His kingdom. The kingdom of heaven that's at hand. Have your heart focused on, prepared for, focused on and driving toward the kingdom of God and the Father of the kingdom. Which, by the way, you can't what? Do. And I can't do, can we? I can't make that happen. Can you? Can you? The Spirit can only do that, right? I can't do that. Left to my own devices, guess where I'm going to go every time? Back to my kingdom. Back to my self-glorification. Back to me not only trying to glorify myself, but wanting you to do what? Glorify me. That is the default that's hardwired into every fallen creature. Need of repentance. And so when we go to a, if we want to use the literal the illustration, into some sort of private room and close the door and pray, one of the first things that happens is what? I'm not able to magnify what? My kingdom it actually kind of looks kind of ludicrous isn't it for me to just be alone with god and magnify my kingdom we're going to find once we get into the lord's prayer we're going to find we do it anyway we do but the idea that jesus is presenting here is you are a hypocrite and repentance is not just from something it's to something right it's from self-glorification and my kingdom glorification to a recognition of God's kingdom, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and Christ, the king of the kingdom, is at hand. And certainly, he was there, wasn't he? Emmanuel, what? Means God with us. That, even though Christ has physically gone back to heaven, that hasn't changed, has it? Emmanuel is still Emmanuel, is he not? If we're His child, God with us. He sent His Spirit to do what? To be with us and so that He will never leave us nor forsake us. God with us. And the idea is Jesus is presenting here in verse 6 instead when He says go and be alone with God. It's not the issue of physical aloneness. The door is closed. You're in your private room. That's just an illustration. The idea is that spiritually you are what? 
Yes, but no, he's talking about in, in, in verse 6, as you're praying in this way, you are spiritually what? Alone with God. The point is, and in order to be spiritually alone with God, what must be true? Now, now I'm, I'm trying to work with the greater story of the Scripture than just this text. In order for me to truly be alone with God, I, there are several things I must know. And believe. Remember, we don't just believe in God, we believe God. I don't just believe in God, but I believe everything that God said. And that includes what God says about me, right? I acknowledge, I agree with God everything He says about me. And, and, and those things are not pretty, are they? For the most part. There are some things that are pretty after the unpretty things are said, right? And all the pretty things are because of what He does and did in us, right? Which is not a focus on me, it's a focus on on what He does and who He is, right? So I must believe what He says about me, and I must believe what He says about Him. If I am going to be in this room with the door closed, and it's just me and God, that must mean, how can I know I'm, I'm alone with God if I don't know who God is? And how can I know if I'm alone with God if I don't even know who I am? And embrace the truth of what God says about me. And what God says about Him. And I think that's the real point of six. Instead of this, my kingdom, praise me, look at me, I can't do that when I see what God says about me. Can I? When I see what God says about me, it's no longer my kingdom because I start to recognize something about my kingdom. And what I see about my kingdom is it's grotesque. It's horrifyingly grotesque. I start to see that my kingdom is merely an extension of the kingdom of darkness. And I start to see more and more that that kingdom has no power. And how do I see that kingdom has no power? Because there's something I know about Jesus. He rose from the dead. And rising from the dead, He conquered sin and Satan and death. The kingdom of darkness has been defeated. Hasn't it? And I start to see the power of the King and the power of His kingdom. And I start to see the good things that I may be because of what He's doing in me and has done in me in pouring out His grace and mercy upon me. And I find myself just wanting to what? Be with Him and glorify Him. And that's what He's talking about in verse 6. And that is not hypocrisy. <coughs> If I've been made alive by Christ, it's not hypocrisy to magnify the one that's made me alive. It's not hypocrisy to, to minimize my perspective of me. It's, it's harmony. It's absolute harmony. Because I am in Christ. I've been grafted into the vine. 
I am in Christ and I am a member of His kingdom. And according to Colossians 3.3, my life is hidden with Christ in God. If that's true, then it's absolute harmony if I am what? Humbly enjoying, submitting, and glorying in my King. It's the only thing that makes sense. Don't be like the hypocrites. Instead, what Jesus is in effect saying is no God. And knowing God, know you. And you will find yourself what? You'll find yourself saying, all I need is Him. And all I want is Him. And all I need and want is Him to be glorified. And that understanding is crucial as we get into 9 through 13. He moves on. There's much more we could say there. <clears throat> verse 6. <clears throat> um, I'm sorry, verse, verse uh, 6 continues. Yes, verse 16 I'm sorry, verse 6 continues, but when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who's in, in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Now, we got to pause on that one. Because what you think it says is not exactly what it's saying. When it, first of all, what he says, your Father who sees in secret is not talking about the room that you're in behind that door. When it says your father who's in secret is talking about the true secret things. Who sees in secret is referring to what do you think? Your heart. What your motives are. What your longings are. What your desires are. What controls you. He knows you, the prayer. And when you are responding to who God is because of what He said He is and who He says He is, and what he says he's about, what he sees he's after, and when you begin to respond to the reality of who you are because of what he says you are, and what he has revealed you are, that will so transform your heart that he will see what is going on in secret because in reality he's doing the things that are being changed in secret, correct? And he sees those changes that are taking place in you by the Spirit in secret and He will do what? He will reward you. Now, remember, now we have a contrast, right? Because He said before, they're receiving their reward. Those who are hypocrites are receiving their reward here and now. He says here, He will reward you. Now you think, and what is often seen here, is He's going to bless you with all sorts of great things especially in light of a discussion of prayer. Because certainly, if He's talking about prayer, He's going to reward you while you pray, it must mean that He's going to do what? He's going to answer your prayers, right? And the, answer, the, the, the statement He's going to answer your prayers is correct. It's correct. But there's one huge caveat. Well, not even that, Jim. That's true, but it's more important and more basic even than that. When he says he will reward in secret, I'm sorry, when he will, he will reward, I'm sorry, he sees the things in secret and he will reward, 
What is He rewarding you with? Is He rewarding whatever prayer you pray? No, the Scriptures tell us elsewhere that's not the case. We're put that in the back of your mind. Not, he doesn't always answer prayers. Just because we pray it, in spite of what you may think, and what a lot of Christians think, when He talks about the reward here, He will reward you. He is talking about something much more basic and yet much more profound than you think it is. When He says in the end of verse 6, when He says, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you, He's talking to you about two things. Actually, three. He's talking firstly, He will forgive you for when you repent. And that is a reward. Is it not? 4.17 This is all about a call to repentance. But what good is repentance if there's no forgiveness granted? If the sin is on the ledger and you repent of the sin and God refuses to erase the ledger, what good is the repentance? What good does that do you? It does you no good at all. You're still hellbound. Because the sin is still on the ledger. He will reward you means, firstly, the ledger will be erased. That mark on the ledger will be erased. The Scriptures say elsewhere, your sins will be removed as far as the east is from the west. That sounds like he's got a really good eraser. Doesn't it? There's no magic to pull it back out again when he pulls out the eraser. 1 John 1 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. <sighs> what a reward. What a reward. And by the way, isn't it weird that John says he is faithful and just? Wouldn't you expect is faithful and merciful or faithful and gracious wouldn't that make more sense in the text wouldn't it it'd make a whole lot more sense merciful or gracious than just except when he says in 1 John 1 he is faithful and just God had to deal with sin and the only way that you get the sin erased from the ledger is because he was just. And he poured his justice out on Jesus. And he rewards you and me because of what? Could I just put it to you this way? He rewards you not because you prayed a prayer of repentance. That's secondary at best. He rewards you with forgiveness because of Christ's finished work on the cross. So you're a recipient of a reward you don't even deserve. Does that make sense? Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. So first thing we receive, the reward we receive, is forgiveness. But it's because of Christ. Secondly, we receive a reward 
of intimacy with Jesus. Intimacy with God. And again, we need to stop and say, do we receive intimacy with God primarily because we pray? Privately? On self-glorifyingly? No. Once again, it goes back to the same answer. We receive a reward, but it's because of what Christ has accomplished. If certainly if the Spirit had never moved in our life, we would never pray that way, would we? This is all the Spirit's work, isn't it? This is all Christ's work, isn't it? And then thirdly, the reward we receive is that we will go to be with Him, that where He is, we will be with Him forever. He has gone to prepare a place for us. This is the reward. In other words, it can be summed up with this. You receive your reward now, which is a reward that is consistent with the kingdom that you are trying to advance. However, if you humbly pray and He sees you in secret, then He will reward you in this trifold way. And you and I deserve none of it. Because it's all because of what Christ has done. On the one hand, the first reward is, well, that's what, that's what you deserve. <laughs> but this other reward that He promises to give is all because of Christ's work. It's all because of the Spirit's work. It's all because of the triune God's work. Which should cause the, re the rewardee, the one who is receiving the reward, should cause them to what? To glorify God even more. And to repent even greater. And to glorify God even more. And to repent even greater. I want to put both of them in there, right? In an ever ongoing way. That's exactly what he's talking about. And I hate to say this. I was hoping to get through verse 8 today. We've got 7 8 left. And we're going to have to bring it, wrap it up to a conclusion now. Twice I've done it in two weeks. No. Twice in three weeks. Sorry about that. What's the point? I hope you're picking up on the point. The point is we are hypocrites. We are. You are. I am. Your neighbors are. Your loved ones are. Saved are hypocrites. Unsaved. In fact, saved people are more hypocrites than unsaved people, aren't we? Unsaved people are just being who they are. <laughs> We're hypocrites. We are. We cannot deny it. To deny it is the worst thing we could do. Because we make, according to 1 John 1, we make him a liar. Worst thing we could do. We are hypocrites. The call of verses 5 and 6 is the call to 4.17. Repentance. Because we are hypocrites. And by the way, I just want to throw this out here. If you look at yourself and say, yeah, I, I don't pray very much at all, I, day after day after day after day, I find myself never praying. That makes you even worse of a hypocrite if you are a believer, if you claim to be a believer. Even worse. The call is to repentance. 
if you're praying, on the other hand, for your own kingdom, for your own glory, and we do in a variety of ways, the call is the same to repentance. And then to seek Him while He may be found. And all that is done by the Spirit. And probably the greatest prayer we could pray as hypocrites after forgiveness, after repentance, is what? God, open my eyes to see. Change my heart. Inflame my heart that I will see that these will no longer merely be words on a page. Ink and wood product that I know that I'm supposed to read, that I know that I have to read, that I know you've told me to read, but my heart is just hard. And what I need more than anything else is that you bulldoze my heart, that you plow the fallow ground, that you break it up so that seeds can be planted. And I know it's going to be painful because I'm going to see me like I've never seen me before and I'm not going to like it. Because you're not. I'm not going to like it. Because what you're going to show me, I know is going to be ugly and grotesque and horrifying. I'm in Christ. And then please open my eyes to see the beauty of who you are. Help me again to stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene. Blow me away your glory. Help me to see the breadth and the width and the depth and the height of your great love and grace. Do what only you can do in my life and change me so that the things of this earth grow strangely dim in the light of your glory and grace. Because I know, I know when you do that, I'm just going to want you. I'm going to be finding myself praying for your glory and your glory alone. For you to be magnified exclusively in me. I know that's what you'll do. Can I just say this? That's a scary prayer. Because what Jesus said will be true. We have been called to die to ourselves, have we not? And He will cause that to happen. And that is painful. Death is always painful. <laughs> To see the things that we have valued so dear die at minimum in value. 
And there will be loads of repentance. By definition and by, nece- by necessity. Oh, but my goodness. When that happens, by the Spirit, you know what's going to happen? The light will shine. I think back on the creation week. Can you imagine? Can you imagine how dark it was? There was no light. Can you imagine how dark it really was? You can't. There's always light. Can you imagine just an inkling of how dark and how black it must have been? And then God said what? Let there be light. And what happened? The light shined. And what happened to the darkness? It was driven away. If that's not a picture of what God does in his children's hearts, I don't know what is. And it doesn't mean there's no more war. The ultimate driving away of all darkness will be when? When we go to glory. But when the light comes, darkness flees. And what Jesus does in a repentant one's heart done by the Spirit, is he says once again what? Let there be light. And there was light. And we have fellowship one with another. Why? Because we are in the light. And he is the light. And we glory in the light. And we find the glory in that darkness that we once gloried in strangely unsatisfying. Don't we? Oh, Lord, that that would be the case for us. Let's pray. Lord, help us as we go back into singing and then as we go from here that we will be finding in us by Your Spirit as we repent and turn to You by Your Spirit working in our life that we will become more and more dissatisfied with the things of this earth. Lord, I pray that You will help us to find more and more Your grace and Your mercy more to be desired. That Your kingdom is even more desired. That You are more to be desired than anything else. So we ask that You will glorify Yourself by transforming us. That our longing, our, our dreams, our goals will be you and your kingdom. Your kingdom is forever. And our kingdom has already been defeated. So cause us to long for you and your kingdom and your glory. Amen. Let's stand and sing, shall we?